Today, uh, we're in week three of a message series called uh, The Foundation of Faith. Foundation of Faith. And throughout the month of August, we're spending some intentional time in Luke chapter 8. One of the main themes in Luke 8 is how to get faith and how to put that faith to work in the everyday experiences of life. Now, obviously, we're not talking about my wife, Faith. We're talking about a different kind of faith. How to get faith and put that faith to work in the everyday experiences of life. The passage that we're going to read and learn from today uh, happened right on the hills of last week's message and passage. So Jesus and his disciples uh, had gotten into a boat, and they traveled from Capernaum to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And tired from a long day of ministry, Jesus decided to take a nap. How many of you guys are excited for a Sunday nap today? A few of you? I'm going to try to keep you awake a little bit longer, all right? But after falling asleep, uh, just shortly after, the Bible says a huge storm fell on the lake, a dangerous storm. And the boat started to fill with water. The disciples were rightfully terrified. And uh, shouting at the top of their lungs, they decided to wake Jesus up from his nap. And when he woke up, uh, he simply spoke. He rebuked the wind and the waves, and the storm immediately stopped. And then turning to his disciples, he asked them a question. And I don't know the tone of his voice when he asked this, uh, but if you follow along with the text, it kind of seems like he was just like, friends, where is your faith? Where is your faith? The disciples learned a few lessons that day about faith. We, we learned several lessons as well last week. Whether it's a literal storm that you're going through or one of life's storms, this is the trials and troubles that we all experience. We can be reminded that when we are afraid, God is not. When we are afraid, God is not. We also learn that faith is choosing to believe and obey in spite of our circumstances. It's choosing to believe God's word, to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that we're going to be obedient to God's word in spite of the difficult things that we experience in life. We also talked about how God wants to give us the gift of faith even when faith is hard. Now, I don't know about you. But if I had just experienced a storm like the ones the disciples went through, I don't think I would have been up for much more the rest of the day. All right? I'm checking out. I think I would follow Jesus' example, and a nap would be on the agenda for sure. But a nap was not on the agenda for the disciples that day. Instead, they were about to witness, do, uh, witness Jesus do another amazing miracle, um, but in a very tense situation. If you're able this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me as I read today's passage aloud. Uh, This is Luke chapter 8, 26 through 39. This is where we read about this very tense situation with this miracle that Jesus performed. This is what we read. So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes, across the lake from Galilee. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time, he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside of town. That word tombs is maybe another way to say the cemetery. As soon as he saw Jesus, uh, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. And then he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. The spirit had taken control of the man. Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply spoke, or he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness, completely under the demon's power. 
Jesus demanded, what is your name? Legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit. Now there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. The demons begged him to let them enter into the pigs. So Jesus gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. The entire herd of pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and they drowned. When the herdsmen saw this, they fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. So you get the sense, they didn't stop when they were telling people about what they saw. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone, for a great wave of fear swept over them. So Jesus returned to the boat and left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him home, saying, No, go back to your family. Tell them everything God has done for you. So he went all throughout the town proclaiming the great things that Jesus had done for him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for bringing us together today. Uh, We know the Bible is for learning and for living. There's a lot to learn here. Um, But Holy Spirit, help us to see the application in this as well. Uh, What for many people is a very confusing passage uh, addressing some very confusing topics. And so I pray you would bring clarity today. Help us to be uh, faithful to your word. Um, Help us to be a faithful church um, that is a light in this community as we spread uh, the hope of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So there's some weeks that I get in the office on Monday, and I, I kind of I know what's coming. Uh, I plan ahead the passages that I'm going to preach on, and this is one that I opened up and I read Monday morning, and I'm like, all right, here we go. <laughs> this, this is, we're going to address some, some difficult things today. I told a couple of people, I said, get ready for Sunday. We're going to talk about miracles and demons. That's what we're going to talk about. And as I read and studied this passage, you know, I felt it was important, though, for us to spend some intentional time uh, laying some groundwork to build from. You know, certainly, this was an encounter the disciples did not expect um, after having to travel through such a dangerous storm, all right? They already had all the excitement, all right? They're ready for a break. They're ready for a nap. And if I had to guess, it's probably not the kind of story you expected to hear when you came to church today. I have a question for you. What comes to mind when you hear those two words? What comes to mind when you hear the word miracle and demon? Not necessarily together, but as two separate words. What comes to mind when you hear that word miracle? And what comes to mind when you hear the word demon? You know, I would argue that these two words um, are largely misunderstood today, largely misused. That many people in the church would probably say, you know, I believe that we serve a God who is more than capable of performing miracles. I believe that we do, but he probably wouldn't do something like that in my life. God performed miracles a long time ago in this way, but he just doesn't do stuff like that anymore. Maybe that's what's going through your head. When the word miracle is used, I think it's often wrongly used. 
For example, I've actually heard people say, yeah, I was driving in my car, things were great, I needed to get somewhere fast, maybe work or to go see a friend, and, and you wouldn't believe it, but every single light along the way was green, it was like 10 lights, it was a miracle. <laughs> in case someone hasn't already told you, that is not a miracle. You just happened to be driving through the lights at the exact right time when everyone else had to wait at red lights. So was it a miracle for you but not for them? What exactly is a miracle then? I'm going to give you a couple different definitions. The first is more of maybe a scholarly definition. Just one sentence. A miracle is an event that involves the direct and powerful action of God, transcending the ordinary laws of nature and defying common expectations and behavior. And so next week there's going to be a test, and I expect you to memorize that and then you say it when you come in the door. No, so that, that's a long sentence, right? There's a lot there. And that's why I really like Pastor Craig Groeschel's definition of a miracle. It's much shorter. It's much simpler. Uh, he just says that a miracle is when God in heaven intervenes on earth. A miracle is when God in heaven intervenes on earth. So a miracle is when an all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God intervenes in your life. Alistair Begg wrote that the greatest miracle said the great miracle is that God could change a heart. That he could take someone who was not seeking him and turn him around. I don't know if you've ever thought of salvation as a miracle, but it is. Every single time we celebrate a baptism, we are literally celebrating a miracle. Just a couple of weeks ago, Zolan and Zach Peterson, they were baptized at their family's property. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. Every time God delivers someone from an addiction, that is a miracle. When God heals someone who is sick, that's a miracle. When God restores broken relationships, whether it's a marriage, a friendship, a parent-child relationship, that is a miracle. And friends, I believe we serve a God who is more than able to perform miracles even today. Amen? So outside of God changing a person's life, saving sinners, like us, every miracle that we read about in the Bible falls into one of four categories. Um, First, there are miracles of healing that we see in the Bible. Um, Throughout Scripture, we find stories of God physically healing people who were sick. We see that. Maybe that freaks you out a little bit today. That's okay. There are miracles of protection. This is God divinely protecting his people. We see that over and over again throughout the Bible. There are miracles of provision. This is the providence of God. God showing up and and providing for the needs of his people. I think one of the most clear stories is manna from heaven. God feeding his people when they needed it. And then finally, there are miracles of deliverance. This is the kind of miracle that we read about in today's passage. A lot of people think this is the creepiest type of miracle. This is when God does a miracle over the forces of... uh, the, power, the, the forces and powers of darkness. Now, right now, some of you are thinking to yourself that this is about to get weird, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe you're thinking, I'm not even sure if I believe in miracles or, or demons. I like the quote that someone said, the greatest trick the devil ever played was to convince the world that he does not exist. One of the greatest tricks the devil ever played was to convince the world that he does not exist. And I would add to that, to convince the world that God isn't who he says he is. One of the greatest lies that our spiritual enemy tells us is that he is not a force that is fighting against the kingdom of God and the truths of his word. And so, 
We've talked a little bit about miracles. We're going to shift gears, and we're going to talk about demons and the spiritual battle um, that we all face. And in doing so, I want to remind you today that Christianity um, is not a playground. Christianity is a battleground. Let me say that again. Christianity is not a playground. Christianity is a battleground. According to Scripture, um, the natural world that we see is not all there is. The Apostle Paul talked about this in depth in Ephesians chapter 6. I'll highlight verse 12 for you this morning. He says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world, and against the evil spirits in the heavenly places. Some of you came to worship this morning, and you've got some issues in your life, some challenges, and you think that your greatest enemy is your boss at work or the coworker that you just can't get along with. But that's not the case. Let me also tell you that your greatest enemy is not your mother-in-law. It's not the strangers that you argue with and disagree with on social media. Paul tells us that we have a spiritual enemy. The way he defines this is evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, mighty powers in this dark world, and evil spirits in the heavenly places. According to Scripture, we are daily doing battle against these spiritual enemies. So that begs the question what exactly are these spiritual enemies? What is a demon? You know, in our Western Hollywood-influenced society, uh, far too many people have been presented with a false narrative about demons. You probably have something that comes to mind. Maybe it's a, you know, a red figure with horns, a tail, and a pitchfork. That's not what we see in Scripture. I would say if you want to do more reading and study on this on your own, uh, most Bible scholars and theologians, they tend to go to two places. Uh, They go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 14, And they also go to the New Testament book of Revelation chapter 12. So if we go back a little bit, Isaiah chapter 14, we see Lucifer, it's another name for the devil or Satan, um, making his five I will statements. To summarize, uh, Lucifer said, "I, I will be like God. I will ascend to the highest place. I will exalt my throne above everything else. So on five different times, he said, I will be like God. But God says, no, you won't. Because there is no one like me. And so he threw Lucifer out of heaven. And then Lucifer took several angels with him. And many Bible scholars would say that that demons are actually the fallen angels that left heaven with Lucifer when God cast him out. Now we know that there is only one devil, but there are many demons. I've heard it said that what an angel is to God, a demon is to the devil. So in the same way angels serve and work to glorify God, demons serve and do the work of our spiritual enemy, the devil. Now the devil's main goal, his purpose is actually given to us in John chapter 10, verse 10. This is what we read. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. That is his mission. That is his sole purpose. Steal, kill, and destroy. You can say it this way, that the devil's purpose is to take life. In contrast, if you keep reading this verse, we see what God's purpose is. God's purpose is to give life. In the second half of the verse, Jesus said, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. So the devil takes life, but God gives life. The devil takes life, God gives life. If you were to ask me, 
Where do we typically miss the mark when it comes to the reality of spiritual warfare in our lives? I think we make one of two mistakes, and they're two extremes. Um, depending on where you're from, how you were raised, what church uh, you grew up in, what your, your upbringing was, right, was like, we, we tend to fall into one of two categories in terms of how we think about these things. And the first mistake that we make, one end of the spectrum, is that we overemphasize demonic influence. We overemphasize demonic influence. So in some church cultures, uh, people overemphasize demonic influence. Um, just like it's wrong to say that not having to stop at any red lights on my way to work was a miracle, right? That's not a miracle. It's also wrong to say that having to stop at 10 red lights on my way to work was a demon's fault. It wasn't a demon's fault. If you get a new iPhone, you're walking next to a puddle of water and it falls in the water, it was not the demon's fault. You just need to hang on to your phone a little bit more. So in other words, not everything that doesn't go according to your plan is a result of demonic influence. You can't blame all of your problems on the devil. Um, the devil didn't make you eat the entire bag of Doritos. <laughs> the devil didn't make you stay up late last night and so you're tired at church today. We can't blame everything on the devil. And so that's one extreme. We, we overemphasize demonic influence. But there's another extreme. And, and I would say, you know, being a part of the Christian church, the restoration movement, I think far too often we fall on this spectrum of things. We tend to underemphasize demonic influence. And while not every problem is caused by the devil, I would argue that more problems than what most people realize are caused by the forces of darkness. What exactly do demons try to do in our lives? Well, if we're going to be successful at fighting the daily spiritual battle that we're in, I think it's important that we understand our enemy. Again, not your mother-in-law, not your coworker, not your boss, but Satan. I want to give you three short points that you can think about today. Number one, demons tempt you to sin. Demons tempt you to sin. Um, demons will tempt you away from God's truth and his will in order to get you to give in to the natural sinful desires of your heart. When the Apostle Paul was writing to a young pastor by the name of Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.26, he was talking about a group of people, and this is what he said, they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they've been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Demons want to trap you by lying to you, by trying to trick you and convince you to go down a, a path that will ultimately lead you away from uh, God's truth and his will. Demons are great at minimizing sin. We see this in culture so, so much. You're, you're tempted with something and you think, you know what, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. I'll just take a step over a little step. And this can be a variety of things. Right? We're all sinners by nature and by choice. We, we've given in to temptation, every last one of us. Demons minimize sin. And then what happens when you give in to temptation and you sin? They lie to you again by telling you that God could never forgive you. That you're unlovable that you're worthless. So they lie to you about sin, and then when you give in, it's like they bait you, and then they tell you, they, they lie to you about your identity. They lie to you about God. 
Demons tempt you to sin. The second thing is that demons distract you from God's will. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, we read about this. Paul was talking to Timothy, and uh, we see how demons distract you from God's will here. This is what we read. Now, the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from, what's the word? Demons. Some of you may know someone who fits this category, this description. You know someone um, who has turned away from their faith because they bought into the lies of the devil and the world. There was a time maybe they were walking faithfully with God, but deceptive spirits have led them away from the truth of God's word, and now they believe false doctrines, and they live in a way that directly contradicts God's design and plan for their life. Why did that happen? The Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from their faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. It's common today for people to say things like, it doesn't really matter what you believe because all roads lead to God. How many of you have heard that before? Or something like that. Yeah, you see those bumper stickers that say coexist and they've got a symbol for every world religion on it? It sounds loving, right? It kind of sounds nice, but it's not true. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So not all roads lead to God. Not all roads lead to heaven. There is only one road, and his name is Jesus. Demons want to distract you from God's will. They want to whisper half-truths in your ears so that you're led down the wrong path in life, so that you would be deceived. Friends, don't be deceived. Number three, demons inflict suffering. Demons inflict suffering. And this is where we're going to camp out. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. This is something we clearly see in today's passage. Jesus and his disciples, they reach the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a region called the Gerasenes. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, he was met by a man who was possessed by demons. This guy, the Bible says, was homeless. He was naked. He had been shunned and cast out by society. As soon as he saw Jesus, he fell to the ground, screaming, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Jesus commanded the demons to come out of him, but they begged him to leave them alone. And there happened to be a herd of pigs nearby, so they begged Jesus to let them enter into the pigs instead. So Jesus gave them permission. I think we skip over that sometimes. I love that. The fact that Jesus had to give demons, uh, that Jesus had to give demons uh, permission to do anything. That's huge. He gave them permission. They entered the pigs, and the entire herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake, and then they drowned. And the people who saw this, they, they were terrified. They ran into the nearby town. They told everyone what had happened. As you can expect, they didn't quite know what to do with this. Some of you are hearing a message today about miracles and demons. You're like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. Just hang in there a little longer. The opinions of people didn't matter to Jesus. It didn't matter to this man. Right? They had made up in their mind how they were going to think about this. 
this experience, what they saw, what they were going to share with others. The opinions of people didn't matter. Jesus, he ended up restoring the man to where he was no longer possessed. He was able to put on some clothes, and he was perfectly sane. He had been healed. Again, the demon's purpose was to inflict suffering. It was to take life. But Jesus' purpose was to heal. It was to give life. Satan takes life. God gives life. The people asked Jesus to leave, but the man who had been healed, he asked if he could go with him. He's like, take me with you. You've changed my life. I just want to be with you. I want to go with you. Jesus told him to go back to his family instead, just to tell them about everything that God had done for him. And everywhere the man went, he told people about the great things Jesus had done. This was truly a miracle of deliverance. So what is the application in all of this? What do we do with this? Remember, the Bible is for learning, but it's also for living. Well, in this passage, we see three different forces at work. We see Satan and demons. We see society, and we see the Savior. And these same three forces are still at work in our world and in our lives today. And so the application comes by answering three important questions. And we'll go through these quickly. Number one, what does Satan do to people? Well, he's the father of lies. We've we've already established that his sole purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And when we read this story, we're not told exactly how the demons were able to enter into this man's life. I mean, it's, it's likely, it's possible that this was a slow fade of just being tempted and giving in to sin. That's likely. But however it happened, the demons, they were given some kind of foothold in his life. And that should be a warning to every single one of us. Are we living in a way that we give Satan a foothold in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes. Because of this, he lost everything. This man lost his home. He lost the fellowship of his family and friends. He lost his clothing, his sanity, his peace, and his purpose for living. He lost it all. It's important that we never underestimate the destructive power of the devil in our lives. He is our great enemy. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, stay alert. That, that phrase means remain watchful. It's kind of like watching for incoming ships off of the ocean. Maybe you're put in charge of a, a tower, a lighthouse or something. You're, you're being watchful. You're always being on guard. I think of the, uh, the, the air traffic controllers. How would you like it if they were not watchful when your planes were coming in? That'd be pretty messed up, right? <laughs> Jesus says this, this spiritual battle that we're facing, this is, this is real. Stay alert. Stay watchful. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him. Be strong in your faith. Remember, remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. This is something every Christian faces. The man whom Jesus encountered in this story, I would say is an extreme example of what Satan and demons can do in the life of a person. It's an extreme example. But his story should be enough to remind us that our enemy is real. And we should fight this battle in a way that shows we want nothing to do with him. Amen? The second question is this. What does society do to people? So we see 
you know, the forces of Satan and demons, but, but also the force of society. What does society do to people? Well, if we look at the example given to us in this passage, we're reminded that society is not our Savior. Society is not our Savior. Now, I, I have to admit that I, I think some of us live in a way that we think society is our Savior. When this man was going through the worst thing he had ever gone through, it was society that put him in chains. It was society that cast him out. It was society that forgot about him. Society is not equipped to cope and deal with the daily battle of spiritual warfare. Even with all of its wonderful scientific achievements and advancements, looking to society for answers is not the solution. So that begs the question, where do we look? Where do we go? The third question is, what does the Savior do for people? What does the Savior do for people? What did Jesus do for this man? Well, for starters, he was willing to travel through an extremely dangerous storm to get to him. And if you connect the dots, it seems as though Jesus made this dangerous trip with his disciples across the lake just to meet this man because right when he was done, he went right back to the other side. He didn't stay and hang around. You think about what Jesus was willing to do to get to this person. He graciously came to him in love when everyone else had cast him out. And he alone was able to deliver him by the power of God's word. Jesus is the one who restored this man to sanity. He restored him to society. And then finally, what we see at the end of the passage, he restored him to service. Satan tried to destroy him. But Jesus came through a storm, to deliver him. Don't miss that. As we get to the end of the passage, you have to wonder why Jesus didn't allow this man to follow him. I mean, after all, he now had this amazing testimony of what God had done in his life. He begged Jesus to go with him. The Bible says he begged. I don't know what the, the posture was here. I don't know when the last time I begged for something I think it's more than just like asking for a cheeseburger. Or can we go to the mall? It's more than that. This man begged to go with Jesus. I mean, surely Jesus could have used him and used his story on the road as he traveled from place to place. Surely there was room enough on the boat to take him back with him. Why didn't he allow him to go? This is probably the one thing that's been just churning in my mind this week. And here's what, here's what I came up with. I believe it's because Jesus knew the man's rightful place was in his hometown. With the very people who didn't believe, the people who knew him and he could have the greatest impact on. I mean, after all, the Great Commission, making disciples by going and baptizing and teaching, where does that begin? It begins at home. Yes, we're to go to the ends of the earth, but where do we begin? We begin at home. And I think if we can learn how to honor God and how to serve God faithfully where we live, he may just open the door for us to go to other places. We have to learn how to be faithful with little before we can be faithful with much. I think this is a great example of that. The man Jesus delivered... Um, really became one of the very first missionaries. Now, this is pre-resurrection. This is still Old Covenant. But if you look at it that way, he, he went and told everyone about Jesus. He really became one of the first missionaries. 
And I have to believe that many of the people he shared his story with ended up believing in Jesus and surrendering their life to him. And so it comes full circle with the application. If God has delivered you, if you have been born again, how are you going to use your story to tell other people about Jesus? How are you going to be used by God right where you live? I think sometimes we think, man, well, if I could just go on a mission trip, like then, then I could be used by God, you know, for that week or those two weeks. Or, man, if I could just know more about the Bible, I could be more effective for God. I could tell people about Jesus. Most of the time in the New Testament, these were just people telling their stories. The disciples, for goodness sakes, they were uneducated, most of them. They didn't know a whole lot about a lot. But they knew Jesus, and they knew what he had done in their lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a story to tell. You have a testimony to share. And I would say it is so crucial if you've never shared that with someone, regardless of your age or stage, don't put that off. Think about that. Write it down. Get it on paper. Pray about opportunities to share that with people. The posture, and I'm, I'm, I'm afraid we've lost some of the fire, friends. Because every single story, every life that was changed, these men and these, these women, they go into the towns they live, the places around their, their homes, and they just couldn't not tell people. It was just like, that's all they could do. They had to tell someone. The Bible says everywhere this man went, he told people about the wonderful things the Lord had done in his life. What has God done in your life? How can you share that with people? I've said this before, but the only thing I can think about is, you know, I really like movies. I like watching movies. And when a new movie comes out, I get really fired up about it. And I tell people about it. I'm like, you got to go see this movie. I need to pray that God would give me that the same kind of passion for him, but even greater. If God has delivered you, if you have been born again, how will you, how will you use your story to point other people to Jesus? And maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not a good spokesperson. I'm not a preacher. I can't talk very well. Most of the people that God used, he used their weaknesses so that he could show up and show his strength. Moses was a terrible public communicator, <laughs> terrible speaker. He brought Aaron alongside of him to help be his spokesperson. Sometimes God puts people in your life to help magnify those gifts that he's given you so that you can share him effectively with others. The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We're supposed to rub off on each other. Just don't start a fire. 